I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We serve a God who is always at work. He is doing. He is busy. From the very beginning, in the beginning, God created. And it is true that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, Genesis chapter 1. I am glad that God is still at work in our day and time. God has not taken a vacation. God is at work. He that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And I'm glad for what he is doing. I'm seeing and hearing the testimonies of what God is doing in your lives. I'm grateful for what God is doing in our, in our community. Um, God is at work. I know that there are some churches that are experiencing uh, revival in these days. Pastor Tom and I had the opportunity last night to be over at Union Grove Baptist, and um, they are experiencing a work of revival in their church. They had, I uh, see some of you back there that were there last night. It's good to see you, and boy, God is really doing an amazing work there. They originally had revival through Wednesday night. They've extended it through today, and potentially even further. God, souls are being saved. The the auditorium was full. It's not just about the auditorium being full. It was not just full of people. It was full of the Spirit of God at work. The anticipation and the, the glory was there. And so if they continue on and you get the chance to go over and be a part of that revival, I would encourage you, anytime there's some coals of fire around, you want to get close to it uh, so that the fire will stir in your heart. And um, also, if you are more up toward the other direction, um, Pastor Tom is uh, starting revival. He'll be at... Um, Hold it, Stephen's Chapel. I had to stop and think about it. I'm still learning church names around. Y'all bear with me. Stephen's Chapel with Marvin only. And um, their revival goes through, I believe, Tuesday night. And so let me tell you something. We pray for a revival. We seek revival. We ask God for a revival. And when there's the opportunity for it, when God is at work, I want to be where God is working. Let me tell you something else. He can work here this morning, too. God's everywhere. The Holy Spirit is everywhere, and the same Holy Spirit that is working east of us and north of us and in all directions, the Holy Spirit that's working around the world is here today, and he is in our hearts, and we are praying for God to give an a, a outpouring of his Holy Spirit, not so we'll have tingles up and down our spines, not so we'll feel good, but so that the work of God will be done. We come to Acts chapter 2. We've just started in to some of the highlights of the book of Acts. It, it struck me Friday evening, I had already mostly finished this sermon, and it struck me Friday evening that I'm preaching on Acts 2 on Pentecost Sunday. Now, I didn't plan that. Don't get used to me preaching through the historical church calendar when the Holy Feast of St. Stephen rolls around. Don't expect a sermon on that. I'm not even sure if there is a Holy Feast of St. Stephen. I just made that up. But um, it happened that I was preaching on Acts chapter 2, and today is what we call Pentecost Sunday. Uh, I, I didn't plan that. I could have, I guess, potentially planned it, but I did not. Uh, when things like that begin to happen, I believe that that is what, I believe that's God. Those things don't happen by coincidence. And so this truth is for us today. And I want you to see some truths in this chapter about, in this story, about how God works. This is one of the great stories in the New Testament of God at work in the lives of his people. It is the birthing of the church. It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we can see some truths about how God is at work in our lives. How many of you need God to do something in your life? How many of you have a burden or a need that you are carrying right now, a situation that is beyond 
your control. Now, some of you have got it all under control. Your life is perfect. You've got it all planned. Everything has always gone according to your plan, and you've got smooth sailing, and I'm sure there's at least one or two of you. Most of you are shaking your heads at me. We know that's not, that's not life. That's not our experience. That's not realistic. And so we know that there are things that are beyond our control. There are situations that we cannot handle. I'm glad that God is able. God is capable. God is almighty. God can do what we cannot do. The Bible says that he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. And I'm thankful for that promise. I want you to see several truths in this chapter this morning. First of all, I want you to see the moment in which God works. And we see this immediately in verse 1. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The day of Pentecost, the word Pentecost simply means 50. It is 50 days after the Passover. The feast of the Passover is the Old Testament feast that points us to the crucifixion of Christ. It is on the Passover that Jesus is crucified as the sacrificial lamb. The Bible tells us you can study the book of Hebrews and see that the things in the Old Testament point us to Christ. When we read and study the Old Testament, there are those today who will try to say, well, we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament and just focus on the New Testament. Let me tell you, we cannot understand the New Testament fully apart from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, the, not just the laws, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not just the moral laws that he perfected and that he embodied, but the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, all pointed to Christ. And the Passover that began in Exodus chapter 13, as Moses told the people to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the post of the door and the post across the top of the door, and that when he said, when I pass over you, I will see the blood and I will pass over. That's where the term Passover came from. Fifty days later, there would be the fourth feast in the Old Testament cycle of feasts. And it was the feast of the first fruits. It was on the day of Pentecost. It was 50 days later as they would celebrate the feast after the time of exile. It was associated with the giving of the law. Isn't it interesting that on the day in which they celebrated God giving the law, God gives to his people the Spirit. I love what John says in John chapter 1. By Moses the law came, but by Jesus came grace and truth. And that is the Holy Spirit that comes. Not a law that conforms us from the outside, but the Spirit of God who transforms us from the inside. The Holy Spirit, the first fruits of the blessedness that we have as believers. We are wealthy in Christ. We have a rich inheritance in Christ. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, I am praying that you will know the wealth that you have in Jesus. And I want you to know this morning, I am praying that you will know and understand. I pray that every attender and member of our church will fully understand all that you have in Jesus. Because I believe that when we know what we have in Jesus, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And I'm glad for what I have in Jesus. And the first fruits of that, the, 
the down payment of that is the Holy Spirit. And so that first fruits, this feast, this day, it also tells me that when God is at work, the moment that he works is according to his timing. When Jesus said to the disciples, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to wait for the promise, he was not sending them back so that when they finally got themselves prepared and ready on their works and on their efforts and on their praying through that he would send the Holy Spirit, he sent them back to wait because he was sending the Holy Spirit according to his plan and according to his time. I want you to know that when God works in our life, he will do so on his time schedule. He will do so in perfect time, but he will do it when he's ready to do so. I don't know, y'all are all godly, Christ-loving people, spiritual. I can just see it in your face. You just look so holy and spiritual this morning, so y'all probably never experienced this. But occasionally in my prayer life, I get impatient with God. Have you ever prayed about something? And you go to God and you have all the details lined out about, now, Lord, please do this and this and this. And you, tell, you find yourself telling God how he ought to answer the prayer that you couldn't do yourself. What makes us think that we somehow have the capability and the understanding and the knowledge and the wisdom to do it? If we, were, if we had that, we wouldn't be coming to God to start with. But God answers in his time. God works in the moment that he is ready to work. So we have to be patient. We have to trust because God will work, but he'll work when the time is right. God's never been a minute early, and he's never been a minute late. He always works exactly when the time is right. We, we began studying in Sunday school this morning the life of Moses. I know eventually, no spoilers, but I know we'll eventually get to the Red Sea. That's just shocked some of y'all. Y'all are disappointed. I gave that away. You'll understand when you get there. But you remember what happened? The army is behind them. The sea is in front of them. And at exactly the right moment, God parts the waters. They get across. But God does it in just enough time. He lets the army of Egypt get close enough behind them so that when they cross the Red Sea, the army is drawn in behind them. And God drowns, God defeats the army of Egypt, but he did it in such a way that the timing was perfect, that they would be at the right place at the right time for him to pour out his attack, his judgment, and for the people of Israel to not only be freed from Egypt, but to be able to move forward without fear. God's timing is perfect, and when God works, it will be in the moment that he has prepared. We must be patient. Number two, I want you to see the means that he uses God uses some unusual means to speak to the people. In this place, now notice in verse, in verse 5, there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. What is this? This is this feast that is taking place. And when there's the feast in Jerusalem, there are pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims that come from all around the world. The people of Israel have been scattered around the world. They have lived in other places, sometimes for generations. And while they're there, they have learned to speak the language of where they are. They have adapted to the customs. Their outward, all their external things, are all of that land where they live. They're called the dispersion. And so these people that are from all around the world have come back. The one thing that they have in common, despite the fact that they speak different languages and they carry different names and they wear different clothing and they've adapted to different cultures, the one thing that binds them together is their faith in Jehovah. 
their worship of Jehovah, their, their religion. And so they come to this place, and they are all in Jerusalem. They are not from Jerusalem. They are from all around the world. And they speak these different languages. And notice what happens. They were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout men out of every nation under heaven. When this was noised, noised abroad, and the multitude came together, they were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. You've got, you've got those from Mesopotamia, and they're there, and they're suddenly, wait a minute, here I am in a city where no one speaks my language, and I'm hearing the wonderful works of God that are being proclaimed. This is unusual. This gets their attention. Notice what they say in verse 8. How do we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? They not only are hearing the works of God proclaimed in their language, they're hearing it, this word is the same word for dialect. In other words, if I had been there that day, I would not just have heard the gospel in English, I would have heard it in God's chosen language, Southern English. Now, as, as pastor would say, that's a good place to say amen. They heard in their own, they heard specifically. Now, did any of the apostles know these languages? No, they didn't. Did any of them know where these people were from? They might have had some idea of where they were from. The only person who knew where each of these people were from, and he says, where we have been born, the only place they knew where they had been born was God. You see, God uses a means that says, this isn't man doing this. When God begins to work, he will use means that will not give human beings credit. Not only will he do things that are things that we can't do, he will do it in such a way that we could not have planned it or coordinated it. He will do it in such a way that only he can get the glory. Man, I love to see when God answers a prayer or when God does something, and it happens in such a way that nobody can say, hey, I did that. It has to be God. That's a God thing. I very often pray for Lazarus kind of miracles. I pray for God to do something so extraordinary. I'm not saying that I'm praying for God to raise the dead. Most of the dead, if they're in heaven, they probably wouldn't want to be raised. I'm not praying for those kind of things, but I'm praying for God to do things that are so extraordinary so beyond human ability or comprehension that this world can look at it and they can only say clearly, God's the one that did that. And that's what he chooses to do. He works in the moment that he says, I'm going to do this. He says, you go and wait. I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit. I'm going to work in this moment. You be ready for it. He works in ways that amaze people. How do we hear every man speaking in his own language, his own dialect wherein we are born? Look down in verse 11 at the end of it after he lists off the, all the places that they are, the Parthians, the Medes, and all the others. Verse 11, we hear them speak in our tongues, our languages, the wonderful works of God. How do we hear this? These people are Galileans. We can tell by their accent they're from Galilee. And you know what they said about Galilee. Can any good thing come out of Galilee? They were shocked. And these are Galileans. They're uneducated. They're from the backwater part of the country. 
They're not the ones God would use. How can they do something this extraordinary? It clearly is God. I am praying that God will do things in our lives that are beyond our capability, that are beyond our power. And if you have a situation in your life right now, maybe you have a physical situation, maybe you have a family situation, maybe you have a a problem, it doesn't matter what the situation is that you're going through. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And he is a God who works in unusual ways, in unexpected ways. But he not only works in unexpected ways, I want you to see the man that he uses when he works. He works through unlikely people. I know we have a number of our, we've just recognized our graduates. And a lot of times we put a lot of pressure on our graduates. We try to encourage them and we say things like, God's going to do something amazing through you. God's going to do something great through you. God's got a great plan for your life. And that is true, but sometimes they hear that and then they hit reality. And let me tell you, if you've been an adult very long at all, you know that reality is not always that great. Can can I get a testimony this morning that reality is not all that it cracked up to be? There were many times I wish I could go back. I used to tell my students this. I said, hey, look, there will come a time in your life you'll wish all you had to worry about was getting a book report in. You'll wish all you had was a, was a pop quiz. Ever had life throw a pop quiz at you? Wake up on Monday morning expecting it to be just as joyous as every Monday morning is? <laughs> and you wake up and you realize it's going to be a week of Mondays. God does have a great plan for our lives, but his definition of what's great isn't always what our definition is. God will do great things through us, but it's not always what we think is going to be great. I want to say to our graduates, and I want to say to all of you, you may hope and pray and even feel called that God is going to do something through you, and it's calling you to do something, to serve, to minister to be involved in full-time ministry, to be involved in missions, to, to do small things, to do big things. And the first impulse may not be, hey, I'm ready for this. Your first impulse may be what many people in the Word of God was, I'm not capable. I'm not qualified. Again, we're studying Moses, and Moses is a great example of this. Moses demonstrates he is not the man for the job, and yet what God says to him, God says, Moses, you're the man. I love what God says to him at the burning bush when he's standing there and God says, Moses, what's in your hand? Moses has already failed. He's already committed murder. He's 80 years old. He's past his prime. 80, do you realize when he stood at the burning bush, he was 80 years old? God says, Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses says, it's just a shepherd's rod. It's just a stick. And God says, I'm going to use that stick, and I'm going to use you, just a plain old stick in the hands of a plain old man, to do what you couldn't do as a young man with with a prince's staff in your hand. That's exactly what God says to us. What's in your hand? God uses unlikely people, and he uses the gifts and abilities they have. Well, I don't have a whole lot. 
It may be Moses with a staff in his hand. It may be a young boy in John chapter 6 with five loaves and two small fish that are just a mediocre, just a, a small, poor lunch. It may be David standing before Goliath with a sling in his hand. You remember what happened to David? David says, I'll go kill that, I'll kill that giant. And Saul says, great, we're going to put armor on you. Boy, there will be Saul's in your life who will impose their own expectations on what it looks like to serve God. And David says, this armor doesn't fit me. I'll use what God has put in my hand. David, what's in your hand? A little leather strap with a little leather pouch and a few little rocks. And he says, I'll use what God's given me. Let me say to you, don't. God is not a cookie-cutter God. God saves us all by his grace and by faith in Jesus Christ, but he brings us to salvation in many different ways. We are saved. We all come to the cross, but we come to the cross by many different paths. And God sanctifies us in different ways. He is not a cookie-cutter God. He works in our lives, and he used different means to bring us to a place of Christ-likeness, all to Christ-likeness, but all in different ways. And God uses us in service in different ways, and he uses different gifts and different abilities and different personalities and different styles. And we don't try to be others. We don't put Saul's armor on. We pick up David's sling, and we do God's work in God's power for God's glory. So don't let anyone try to force you into a mold of, of what they think you ought to be to serve God. There are some biblical guidelines. There are some biblical principles, yes. But God uses unlikely people. And when it came to be the keynote speaker on the greatest day in the history of the church, the greatest missions day in the history of the church, the greatest day of evangelism possibly in the history of the church, he didn't choose John, and he didn't choose Nathaniel, and he, he chose Peter. What was Peter's one great quality. He was quick to speak. He was bold. He would step up, and it didn't matter where it was or when it was, Peter had something to say. He's like a lot of Baptist preachers, occasionally wrong but never in doubt. <laughs> Peter would speak up. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Peter, you're the son of God, you're the Christ, the Son of God. But it's not too long from that that Peter takes Jesus and rebukes him and says, far be it from thee, Lord, you're not going to be crucified. Peter was quick to speak, but in the flesh, Peter could say some pretty outrageous things. It's not too long before this day when God uses Peter that Peter's standing around a fire, warming his hands with the enemies. Warming his hands with the very people that have just arrested and are getting ready to crucify Jesus. And what's coming out of his mouth? Out of the same mouth that just hours before said, I'll never deny you, Peter's saying, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And even cursing to emphasize, I'm not one of his followers. And here we are just a few weeks later, and on the day of Pentecost... The Holy Spirit falls. People are asking questions. And look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up, lifted up his voice. Now, I have a little bit of a sanctified imagination this morning, and I have to imagine that the rest of the disciples probably cringed a little bit on the inside. 
what's going to come out of Peter's mouth. But you see, let me tell you this. This is an important truth. What is our greatest asset, our greatest ability, can, when we're in the flesh, be our greatest hindrance? Peter's greatest asset, his character trait was he was not ashamed or afraid to say what was on his mind. He was bold. And that boldness that was a great asset to him when he was in the flesh, it was his greatest hindrance because he would say, he would stick his foot in his mouth. He would say things he shouldn't say. He would say things that were wrong. But that same asset under the guidance of the Holy Spirit becomes the means by which God works through Peter. God knew that on the day of Pentecost, there's a crowd there that are mixed with the very people who have crucified Jesus. And he needs a bold proclamation. He doesn't need loving John at this point. He needs a bold Peter who will get up and who will look directly at that crowd and say, you're the ones that have by wicked hands crucified Jesus. And Peter's the one. He's the man for that moment. God works through unlikely people. Some of you are in places where you may not be, you may think, I'm not the best person to speak for Jesus. I'm not the best person to... I'm not the best person to speak to that person about Jesus. Some of our graduates are going to colleges and you're heading into classes where if you haven't already faced it, your faith may be challenged and you'll feel unprepared and unqualified. You'll feel unlikely for the task to speak the truth and to hold fast to the faith. God uses unlikely people. What is the message that is in this time when God is working. Whenever God is working, whenever the Holy Spirit's working, it's going to be the message of the gospel. Look over just a few verses to verse 38. Verse 37 says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. They were convicted. God took a bold statement by Peter, Hey, you crucified Jesus. You're the ones that put him to death. You killed the Son of God. And they were convicted in their hearts. What was it that convicted them? Was it Peter's boldness? No. It was spirit-filled boldness. It was the Holy Spirit that was convicting. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent. Be baptized. Make a public profession of your faith in Christ. Repentance and faith. Let me just point out to you quickly, some people get a little confused with this because it says, be repented, uh, be baptized for the remission of sins. Sometimes we use the word for to mean cause. The baptism causes remission of sins, but even in the English language, we sometimes use the word for to mean because of. If we are, if a student is rewarded for their good grades, the reward doesn't cause the good grades. The reward is because of the good grades. And that's the same way that for is used here. Be baptized because your sins have been washed away. The baptism just shows what happened when they repented. 
when I repented of my sins, my sins were remitted, my sins were paid for, my sins were washed away, and when I make a public profession of that faith, that is the outward expression. He's calling them to not just an inward response, but an inward response that flows with an outward expression. What is that? That is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is the message of the gospel, and it is the message that we give to you today. That we are far worse than we could ever imagine. We are sinners, but God loves us far more than we can imagine. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He rose again the third day, and if we will acknowledge that we are sinners and that we can do nothing to save ourselves, and we will believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for our sins and confess him as our Lord, then we will receive the blessing and the gift of eternal life. And along with that gift of eternal life is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the message that Peter's proclaiming. And that is the message that I'm proclaiming to you today. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. And the work that you need God to do in your heart is the work of salvation. Please don't leave here today without experiencing that work in your heart. It's also a reminder that whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in our in our church and doing through us is going to be about the gospel. It's going to be about pointing people to Jesus. Jesus said, when I'm going to give the Holy Spirit, and when he, John chapter 16, when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, the Spirit of truth, he will not speak of himself, he will glorify me. Any work, any worship, anything that we do in the Christian life that points to us, that exalts us, is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Please hear me carefully. Any worship, any service, anything we do that exalts man is not of the Holy Spirit. If it exalts the Holy Spirit, it's not the Holy Spirit doing it. We, we pray and we talk to the Holy Spirit because He's God, and we preach and teach and we worship the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit will point us to Jesus. He will not speak of Himself. He will glorify me, Jesus said. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. He's not exalting the, the empowering that he gives the apostles. He's exalting Jesus, which means that when we look at this chapter, the great miracle, and this is the last thing I want you to see about when God works, the great miracle is not that they spoke in foreign languages. Look, I want to tell you, if I spoke in a foreign language, it would definitely be the work of the Holy Spirit because I'm struggling with English most of the time. And don't y'all sit there and snicker, because a lot of y'all are too. That's not the greatest miracle. You want to see the greatest miracle that takes place in Acts chapter 2? Look down at the end, near the end of the chapter. Verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls saved in one day. And these are souls from all around the world. You know what God's doing? God's getting ready for what he said in Acts 1. You'll be witnesses all around the world. He's getting him some witnesses. He is saving these who gladly receive the word. The miracle is not that it was 3,000. The miracle is that they received the message of the gospel. Jesus said to his disciples, greater works than I did, you're going to do. The greater works aren't healing the sick, even raising the dead. The greatest miracle that will ever take place 
is when your soul is saved because that's eternal. That's eternal. The physical miracles will go away. The man that Jesus healed, the lame man, he was put in a grave and that body deteriorated. The man that got his eyesight back, he died and can no longer see in the physical body. Even Lazarus that was raised from the dead. You know what happened to Lazarus? Anybody seen Lazarus around? I hope you haven't. I hope you don't think you have. Lazarus died. That miracle was temporary. But I want to tell you that when Jesus Christ saves my soul and saves your soul, it is an eternal miracle that will never end. And we have eternal life. What do you need God to do in your life? What is it in your life that is so big it would take God to fix it? That it would take God to do it? What is it that you're praying for? What is it that you need God to do in your life? Who is it that you're praying for to see saved? That you've done everything you can to share the gospel with them and it just doesn't seem to have done any good. Let me tell you who can save them. I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is mighty to save. I want you to, I, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit can save and convict and can reach to the uttermost, to the outermost limits, to the one that's the farthest away. I want you to know that God is able. God at work. What work does he need to do in your life this morning? Will you bow with me for prayer? Someone may be here this morning, and you need to come, and you need to trust Christ as your Savior. You need to publicly profess your faith in Christ. That's the work that you need to experience, and I want to invite you to do that. Walking the aisle won't save you. Coming down and shaking one of the pastors by the hand won't save you. But faith in Jesus Christ will save you. And maybe that's the work that you need to experience. Maybe this morning there's a burden or a situation in your life and you have done everything you possibly can and you need God to do something. You need God to work. God will work in unlikely ways and at unlikely times and through unlikely people. But God will work. Maybe you just need to come to this altar this morning and say, God, I'm giving you this person. I'm giving you this situation. I can't do this. Maybe there's someone that God is speaking to your heart about serving him, and you're afraid to give him because you're afraid. You think, I can't serve God. There's no possible way that God could use me. God uses unlikely people. God takes a Moses that's a murderer. He takes a Peter that's a cursor. He takes a Noah who's a drunk, and he uses them not in their sinfulness but beyond their frailty, beyond their weakness, to accomplish the work that he will do. Whatever God may be speaking to your heart about this morning, as we have this time of invitation, I invite you to come do business with God, whatever God wants to do in your life. Let's stand to our feet. Father, as we're standing, as we have this invitation, I pray this morning that you will speak to hearts. There may be someone here that does not know Jesus as their Savior. Do that work today. Father, in this invitation, my words are enable, unable to accomplish anything, but your Holy Spirit can speak. And I pray that he will speak and we will listen. Do your work today, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.